This is GM Word of the Week, and I'm Fiddleback. Atonement. We here at the Word of the Week are, in fact, human. We realize this may come as a surprise to some of our listeners, but we assure you this is the case. Not only are we human, we are, as they say, only human. Which is why we sometimes make mistakes. Well, that's that's one of the reasons. The other reason is that the very nature of this show requires us to violate one of the cardinal laws of writing week after week. The law that says, write what you know. The problem is this show has gone on a long time now. And we long ago finished working through what we know. And you all just keep demanding more episodes. And if we only wrote what we know, we'd mostly be writing down quotes from Mel Brooks and Monty Python and rattling off five editions of obscure role-playing games rules minutia. So we end up having to learn a lot for each show. And we only have a week to research the half dozen or so major topics that make the cut into each episode. Not to mention the topics that don't make the cut and the handful of tangents and asides. The point is, we make mistakes. And we're sorry. But we don't want to complain about the show or the general tone of the emails and messages we sometimes receive, helpfully pointing out the mistakes. Instead, we want to remind our readers of English writer Alexander Pope's words in his 1711 poem entitled An Essay on Criticism. O ne'er so dire a thirst of glory boast, nor in the critic let the man be lost. Good nature and good sense must ever join to err as human to forgive divine. In other words, everyone makes mistakes. It's easy to do, but we should aspire to be like God, to be charitable and to show forgiveness. Heck, even Dungeons and Dragons understands this. That's why there's an atonement spell. Or why there was, anyway. See, once upon a time, as we mentioned way back in our episode about the Paladin, there was this thing in our favorite fantasy role-playing game called Alignment. It's still sort of there, but it doesn't do anything anymore. And we won't commit the sin of editorializing about that. Way back in the day, alignment was a way of taking a side in the great cosmic war between the forces of civilization and the forces of chaos. Characters were either lawful, part of the civilized world, or they were chaotic, part of the wild, supernatural world beyond the ken of mortal men. And this was mostly adapted from various fantasy writings of the day. The day being somewhere between 1950 and 1970. And the strongest example in fantasy literature was the one found in Poole Anderson's writings, especially the 1953 novel Three Hearts and Three Lions. But Michael Moorcock's own alternate Earth swords and sorcery stories about fantasy hero Elric of Melibone and Roger Zelazny's Chronicles of Amber series also mentioned the interplay between order and chaos, or civilization and the other world, and what have you. It was a common theme. Anyway, Gary Gygax was a fan of all those authors and more, 
and when he and his associate, Dave Arneson, created Dungeons & Dragons back in 1974, they included a codified system of three alignments, lawful, neutral, and chaotic, basically as described. But when the time came to revise the game for a new edition for advanced Dungeons & Dragons, suddenly alignment changed. There were now nine alignments built as a combination of two different moral and ethical outlooks. You could be lawful or chaotic, and you could be good or evil, and you could be either neutral on either access or both. Thus, characters might be lawful good or chaotic good or lawful evil or neutral good or chaotic neutral and so on. And there have been a lot of debates in the gaming community about how and why this change came about. And because lawful and chaotic were kinda sorta originally about the forces of civilization versus the forces of destruction in all those fantasy books and in the original Dungeons and Dragons, a lot of ink was spilled differentiating law and chaos from good and evil to make it all make some kind of sense. But even so, gradually, those distinctions got lost, and generally, lawful good was basically really good, and chaotic evil was tremendously evil. And people argued about all the stuff in between, and who was what and what it meant in the letter section of Dragon Magazine and in their local gaming store. Because memes hadn't been invented yet. Interestingly, before the 1977 publication of Advanced Dungeons & Dragons made the Nine Alignment System the law, both Gary Gygax and fantasy author David A. Hargrave were expanding the alignment system into the nine-point grid we know today. Which has led to some argument about who actually invented it. Hargrave was a very active member of the role-playing game community back in the 1970s, and his own fantasy game world and series of modules called Arduin was one of the first products to compete with TSR's official D&D stuff. And Arduin used the Nine Alignment system. But Gygax had also been writing about such a system in the pages of TSR's gaming publication The Strategic Review to lay the groundwork for the new system. And it seems one of the major reasons for the Nine Alignment system was to provide a behavioral restriction to the Paladin, which was being expanded from a title for a lawful fighter who had survived long enough to earn a title into a full-on character archetype of its own. But none of that matters. What does matter is that once alignment became a big thing and character classes were restricted to certain moral and ethical codes in order to retain their powers, especially those dedicated to particular gods, the system also needed to have a way to deal with people who seriously violated their alignments, particularly in a world where running afoul of the wrong monster or magical item, like a mind-controlling vampire, an infectious werewolf, or a helm of alignment changing, could result in some pretty extreme violations of morals, ethics, and basic decency. Enter the Atonement Spell. Assuming you were truly sorry for the mistakes you'd made, voluntary or otherwise, and they were truly mistakes, you could seek out a ninth-level cleric of sufficient wisdom to cast an atonement spell on your behalf, and you would be absolved of blame, your alignment would be restored, and all would be forgiven. Because to err is human, or at least demi-human, but forgiveness requires divine magic.
Historically, this whole business with seeking absolution through a divine ritual is a common theme in human culture, spirituality, and religion. Consider, for example, the word scapegoat. In modern parlance, a scapegoat is someone who is given the blame for the wrongdoings or mistakes of others. And usually it's a negative. It refers to someone being wrongly blamed for the sins of others. But a long time ago, a scapegoat was part of a ritual of atonement. In fact, it was part of a pretty big and important ritual of atonement. The story starts after the people of Israel were freed from Egyptian enslavement. The Israelites were having a pretty rough time of things. They were wandering the wilderness following Moses. And they were pretty grumbly and hungry and complainy. And so, after about seven weeks of wandering, they came to Mount Sinai. And God called Moses up to the mountain to receive his laws and behold his glory. And Moses said he'd be back in 40 days. But he was a little unclear about what 40 days meant and whether it included 40 days from today and whether day meant a full cycle of day and night and so on. We're not kidding. This is actually an important ambiguity. Because when Moses failed to return on the morning of the 40th day, the Israelites began to worry that he was dead. And this was not helped by the fact that some unscrupulous Egyptian tagalongs who had wanted out of Egypt but didn't really believe the whole one true God thing started saying, well, Moses is dead. Let's go back to worshiping Egyptian gods or we're totally going to die out here in this desert. And so, the people, desperate for spiritual help, created a calf made out of their golden jewelry and trinkets and started worshiping that. Literally a few hours later, Moses came down from the mountain to find the Israelites worshiping this golden idol. And what made this all really awkward was he had this new list of laws that God himself had given to him. And the first two were, in order, don't worship any other gods and never Try to make a sculpture of anything you think is divine and then worship it as if it were a god. It was not a good day. It was very stressful. After losing his cool and then calming down a bit, Moses climbed back up the mountain and spent 40 more days praying for forgiveness for his people. And finally, forgiveness was granted and the day became known as the Day of Atonement. Or, because atonement is pronounced Kippur in Hebrew, Yom Kippur. From that point on, Yom Kippur became one of the most important and central holy days on the Hebrew calendar. And it is coming up. It's in the beginning of October this year. And if you've got a Jewish friend, you should note, Yom Kippur is a very somber holiday, not a happy one. So don't wish a happy Yom Kippur. Instead, you can wish them an easy fast or a good year, because Yom Kippur is recognized with fasting and somber reflection on the failings, sins, and mistakes of the past year, and a pledge to do better in the coming year.
but the scapegoat. This goes back to a ritual that started with this whole Day of Atonement thing. The idea was that on Yom Kippur, the Jewish people would choose from their flock two goats, good ones. One would be randomly selected to be sacrificed to God in an act of atonement. That was for asking forgiveness. To the other one would be transferred all of the various sins of the Jewish people. And that goat, the scapegoat, would be driven out into the wilderness to placate Azazel. Azazel was a demon or spirit or perhaps even a fallen angel who lived in the wilderness and represented sin, unholiness, and uncleanliness. The idea of transferring people's sins to something else in order to cleanse the person is not a uniquely Jewish idea. It also has strong roots in Christianity, at least during certain ages and in certain parts of the world. Let's talk about sin eaters. This was something that appeared in the 18th century in Europe, especially in Scotland where the practice was particularly popular, and it continued through the 19th century and even appears to have made the trek to the Americas where it was occasionally practiced by settlers in the Appalachian mountain regions who were descended primarily from Scottish immigrants. See, in most Christian traditions, it's important that you regularly confess your sins to a clergyman and then seek forgiveness, because if you died with certain serious sins on your conscience, on your soul, as it were, you might be denied entry into the kingdom of God in the next life. So what were you to do if a family member died and you weren't sure if they'd been forgiven of all of their sins? Well, you needed a scapegoat, someone to take the sins for themselves. That person was a sin eater. That was their job, and it wasn't a well-paid job. Basically, a sin eater was paid the equivalent of a couple of US bucks for their services, and they got a free meal. But the meal was kind of creepy, because it consisted of bread that had been sitting on a corpse. Oh yeah, yeah you heard us right. See, the idea was that if you put a loaf of bread on a dead body, their sins would be drawn into the bread. And then, if someone else ate the bread, they would absorb all of the sins of the deceased. The deceased would be free and clear, and the sin eater would suffer the consequences. And sin eaters had a terrible reputation. The idea of absorbing the sins of the deceased and becoming more damned and more wretched is kind of off-putting. The sin eaters suffered a special sort of social stigma and isolation from their communities. And each was, in fact, a member of a community. Sin eaters didn't wander from village to village, you see. Each village employed its own sin eater who would take on the sins of all of their deceased. Now, though we've referred to this as a Christian practice, and it certainly has roots in Abrahamic traditions, like those of the Yom Kippur scapegoat, the fact is that sin eaters were not really sanctioned by the church. They weren't associated with local churches and were usually hired by the families of the deceased, particularly when the deceased died suddenly and unexpectedly and may have had an unclean soul as a result. Sin eaters were often persecuted, and the practice itself was banned entirely in many places. And it appears that it did eventually die out by the early 20th century. Oh, we should also point out 
that sin-eating did not involve eating any part of the cadaver itself. There was no cannibalism involved, as some stories and some video games might suggest. Which is not to say that it never happens. Some cultures do have funeral traditions that involve endocannibalism, the eating of certain internal organs of the deceased. Take, for example, the tragedy of the Fori people of Papua New Guinea. See, for years, no one had realized anyone was living in the highlands of the eastern half of the island of New Guinea off the northern coast of Australia. That is until... In the 1930s, when Australian prospectors looking for gold discovered several hundred thousand people living in primitive villages there, and when anthropologists finally made their way to one of the villages, where a tribe called the Foray lived, they discovered that people were suffering under the shadow of a terrible plague. The Foray people, who numbered about 11,000, were losing more than 200 people a year to an unexplained illness. They called it the Laughing Death because people would lose control of their emotions as they degenerated. The disease was also named Kuru, which means tremble or shake, because the victims would also lose control of their muscles and limbs. What was most mysterious of all about this illness was who it infected. Among the adults, it infected women almost exclusively and it ravaged them. Some foray villages had no adult female populations left. As a result, the villages were dying. But it also infected children. Female children of any age could be affected, but male children over the age of eight never seemed to get Kuru. For decades, researchers tried to unravel the mystery of Kuru. Because of the strange pattern of infection, they ruled out most normal vectors of transmission. They also ruled out contaminants and genetics. And it wasn't until 1961 when medical anthropologist Shirley Lindenbaum cracked the code. It had to do with the funeral practices of the Foray people. See, the Foray believed that it was disrespectful to allow a body to rot. If you truly love someone, you would not bury their body to be eaten by worms or leave it to be consumed by maggots. Instead, you'd eat them yourself. So at their funeral, the body would be cooked and served to the funeral's attendants. The whole village, basically. But the brain was special. It was treated a little differently. It would be removed from the body separately, specially prepared and consumed entirely by adult women. Because the foray believed only adult women could contain the dangerous spirits living in the deceased brain. But the women would also share table scraps from the feast with their children, male and female. Except, once a boy reached eight years of age, he would start spending all of his time with his father and the men of the tribe, learning how to hunt. See, Kuru is actually similar to bovine spongiform encephalopathy. That's the proper name for mad cow disease. And both are caused not by a virus or by a bacterium, but by something called a prion. Basically, a prion 
is a misshapen protein. Proteins are biological chemicals that perform specific functions in living organisms, and mostly what they do has to do with their shape. They are like pieces of molecular machinery, or like molds, or like locks and keys. Prions are normally proteins which are bent and twisted into wrong shapes, and they are able to teach other proteins to bend and twist into the wrong shape. And the prion that causes Kuru collects in the brain and wrecks the proteins of a healthy brain. But we digress. The foray funeral traditions weren't really about passing sins from one to another as a cleansing or atonement. But speaking of scapegoats and atonement and plagues, let's talk about the flagellants. No, we're not talking about a zealous, whip-and-scourge-wielding character class from Red Hook Studios' 2016 horror role-playing computer game Darkest Dungeon. We're talking about the zealous, whip-and-scourge-wielding Christian radicals. The word flagellant, one who flagellates, comes from the Latin word flagellare, which means to whip. And we get the word flail from that. And flagellation is basically self-whipping or self-scourging. Although flagellation really caught on in the 1300s, it was a pretty old idea among some Catholic priests and monks. Most notably, it was taught as a form of penance, of atonement, by Peter Damien, a monk of the Benedictine traditions. And by the 11th century, it became a standard practice in some devout Catholic monasteries. But it was mostly something that stayed inside the closed doors of the monasteries themselves. But then, in Perugia, in Italy, in 1259, as famine was gripping much of Europe and a blight destroyed most of the crops for the year, a group of flagellant monks went into the city center and began publicly whipping themselves and begging for mercy from God. This is the first known recorded incident of public flagellation by Catholic monks. And the practice spread. And then... Something else spread. As we mentioned in our episode entitled Plague, and in our episode entitled Rat, an outbreak of the bubonic plague spread across Europe and devastated the population. Today, we know the bubonic plague is caused by a bacterium that enters the bloodstream, makes its way to the lymph nodes, and destroys them. But in the mid-1300s, people didn't know about bacteria or lymph nodes, and assumed that the plague was punishment from God. And so the membership and public displays of flagellant Catholic sects exploded. The flagellants would travel from town to town, scourging themselves in the streets and begging for mercy from God on behalf of the people of Europe. Today, we also know that the bubonic plague is a bloodborne illness. It's transmitted by fleas who move easily from place to place in the mangy fur of rats. But it's also transmitted by contact with infected blood. So the last thing anyone needed was groups of monks walking from town to town, ripping open bleeding wounds in their flesh. Of course, the actual impact they had on the spread of the plague is unknown. But most scholars are pretty sure it didn't help slow the plague down. That's for certain. Like Sin Eaters, though, the Flagellants didn't always have the best relationship with the Catholic Church. They were initially tolerated, 
But as the popularity of the flagellant movement grew and the flagellants made some outlandish claims that ran afoul of church teachings, they were suppressed in many areas. See, one of the things they claimed was that they, the flagellants, could absolve you of your sins simply by flogging themselves on your behalf. And they also claimed to be able to work miracles. Stories spread that they had brought children back to life and given animals the ability to talk. Eventually, the practice was outlawed altogether. Though flagellant sects did keep popping up until about the 16th century. The point was, the flagellants made some mistakes. Like the foray, and like the Israelites. Which is only human. But the biggest mistake they made was claiming they could offer forgiveness. Because forgiveness could only truly come from the divine. Or in Dungeons and Dragons, from the divine magic of a ninth level spellcaster. Or hopefully from charitable fans who understand that the authors and producers of their favorite podcast are also only human. This has been GM Word of the Week. It's written and researched by the Angry GM and produced by me, Fiddleback. You can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash gmwordoftheweek. You can find more at gmwordoftheweek.com and theangrygm.com. Thank you.